Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. It's up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Ha. We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me primary. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free, okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. Welcome uh, to this part two of uh, the 
extraordinary discussions that we're having uh, on reparations. Um, over these two days, we are engaged in perhaps the broadest and deepest ever examination of the legitimacy of demands for reparations for the crimes of colonialism, the transatlantic slave trade, uh, and chattel slavery. These calls have intensified in recent years and moved from the margins to the mainstream of discourse. Let, let's speak plainly, though. These demands for reparations are uh, for the long history of colonialism, genocide, uh, land theft, enslavement, anti-black racial terror, racial capitalism, structural discrimination, and exclusion. All these that have been foundational to the establishment uh, of the economic growth of countries like the United States, uh, the United, now the United Kingdom, was uh, England, uh, Germany, France, Spain, and others. And the harms are not just historical injustices. Their impacts are ongoing. Uh, they have been passed along from generation to generation, uh, from decade to decade, um, and they are uh, quite uh, alive um, in ways that I think we will uh, talk about later uh, in the current uh, life of all of our communities. Now, when we start talking reparations, uh, there are a number of arguments used to uh, counter the cause for reparations. Uh, it was not illegal at the time. Uh, the Africans did it too. Uh, the victims, those who suffered the harms, are all dead. Uh, those who committed uh, the deeds and benefited from them are also dead now. Um, in any event, it is impossible to calculate or monetize uh, the harms. Uh, how can the economic basis uh, be assessed? Since migration patterns have been significant, isn't it impossible to identify uh, precisely who should receive the reparations? Uh, who are, after all, the descendants of the harmed ones? All these and many other questions and arguments are thrown uh, out as an obstacle course for uh, the payment of reparations that um, are due because of these uh, gross um, crimes, 
against uh, humanity. Um, and so, you know, one needs to, 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 to ask, well, what colossal society rupture will be potent enough uh, to uh, birth the transformation to create change necessary to make this discord different. Um, I think that, you know, what we've all gone through in the last uh, 13, 14 months, uh, both uh, the pandemic and the uh, growth inequalities that have been uncovered by it, uh, the, uh, you know, the sense that uh, that has been raised by the Black Lives Matter movement, that this is the time, um, you know, uh, uh, we, we have to move this forward now or never. Um, and uh, many other reasons why this is the moment at which we are talking uh, about this. And I think that uh, Sir Hillary Beckles gave us all a charge that uh, this should be the, the, the point at which we begin to uh, really have discussion uh, about what it takes to make this uh, a reality. No more generations uh, should be uh, necessary to deal uh, with the legacies of these crimes uh, without justice being uh, found. We've got three um, very um, interesting um, and uh, you know highly um, um, uh, highly, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, oh, sorry, I'm just uh, blanking out here. Uh, 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 speakers who um, have uh, the highest uh, accolades uh, in uh, the uh, study of international law. Um, I will uh, introduce them to you uh, just as they speak, um, and um, uh, then we'll have question and answer opportunities um, at the uh, end after all have spoken. Uh, the first uh, speaker is uh, Parvati Menon, who teaches international criminal law at the University of Helsinki and has previously taught at the University of the Gambia um, and the National Law School of India uh, in Bangalore. She is uh, an alumna of Harvard Law School and the London School of Economics. Um, she's going to um, uh, finish the conversation, if you will, about the transatlantic slave trade and questions of legality around the chattel slavery 
and the time period that she's going to discuss is 1500 to 1850. I turn it over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. McDougall. And uh, a big thank you to all the organizers for putting together such an important event that I'm truly honored uh, to, to be a, a part of. So uh, thank you very much. Um, so in my presentation, I focus, as uh, Mr. McDougall pointed out, I focus on the period between the early 1500s and uh, 1815, which is marked by the Congress of Vienna, which is where Michelle will uh, pick up from. Um, now, carrying out such a large historical uh, study becomes quite imperative in this case. For one, my purpose is to expose the limits of universality of the laws under which slave trade and, and uh, chattel slavery gained legitimacy, uh, the details of which I will return to in, in a moment. But it's also important to engage in a historical study to expose the paradoxical practices among and within European imperial nations. Now, many past practices that were developed by these European nations give credibility to their legal ingenuity. And all of this while disregarding uh, non-Western customs and, and laws. So in carrying out this historical research, my purpose was to destabilize European interpretations to evidence of non-Western resistances and confrontation. And all of this to steer the argument towards examining the conflicting legal basis for slave trade and chattel slavery as already existing in, in the past. So the point that I make is that contrary to European claims of past legality of slavery, uh, there were contradictions in these interpretations. Now, much of this stems from uh, Tendai Atume's point in her report as the special rapporteur, um, where she contests the doctrine of intertemporality through wrongfulness in the present. However, as Atume herself knows, contesting it through wrongfulness in the present alone fails to suffice. So what I put before you are few moments of breakdown in the past that challenged the legitimacy of the European imperial state and the universality of its legal order. So what I'm really taking aim at is the foundation of their economic and political systems that has long since been fortified through sustained measures of injustice and dispossession of African uh, people. So the first point that I raised is that the foundation upon which the chattelization of men, women, and children acquired a legality was not universally recognized as is often the, the claim. It was not recognized in the territory from where Africans were captured and sold into slavery, but it was also not recognized among the so-called civilized nations either. Now, here I give you the example of the Portuguese slave trade, which Nora Whitman has, uh, has discussed a little bit in her presentation. Uh, 
Now, Portuguese kings entered into negotiations with African kings based on their rights to trade under what is called the Gentium, or Law of Nations. Now, uh, as Anne Charlotte Martino's work on, on this topic has, has demonstrated, the attempt to ban the slave trade by the Congolese King Afonso was rejected by a Portuguese court, which argued that the, the trade was enshrined in the Isgentium. But Isgentium was not a court. It was a set of customary practices that supposedly was recognized by all nations. However, what, what's unique and quite important to this scenario to remember is that it was only Portugal that was directly trading enslaved with West Africa and selling them to Sao Tome and Cape Verde at the time. Now, scholars like uh, Francisco Quenaboy argues in his work on the school of, of Salamanca in the 16th and 17th century that slavery was an institution tied to the civil and not the Eugentium of Portugal. Now, Portuguese laws, he claims, uh, permitted slavery and regulated its practice according to different laws and norms. Now, the Portuguese spread a legal model of slavery supposedly based on his gentium and gave the law of nations and European slavery a universal validity and a normative character that it did not possess. Equally, um, people like Ian Hunter also make the point in his work that early modern uses of his gentium were actually particularistic and Eurocentric in the dual sense that it was regional to and within Europe. So any suggestions of the permissibility of the slave trade must confront the limits of the universal, the so-called universal legal language of Yuskendium. Now the second point that I make is regarding the paradox of European practices that managed two things. One was a moral superiority of standing against slavery with reaping the monetary advantages of slave trade. And here I focus on the English uh, slave trade um, and, and their laws and practices. Now, colonialism was not just about acquiring things as property, but it was also about turning things into property. So treating, uh, treating those who were captured from West Africa as property was an inherent part of the colonial strategy of tying people to land and tying their labor uh, uh, to the land. Uh, so what it does introduce was the meaning of chattelization as a process rather than focusing on chattel as a legal category alone. And chattelization was as we all know, a process of dehumanization, but it was also a process to maximize the value of slaves to their owners. Now, many scholars claim that chattelization was contrary to English common laws, uh, quote unquote, claimed bias in favor of liberty. Now, they cite it as reason why it is impossible that English law could be the source of such an abomination. But none of the same scholars account for the Slave Compensation Commission, which was set up in 1834 to compensate British, British slave proprietors, and not just in the colony, but also in the metropole, for lost property in slaves according to English common laws. Now, cases like uh, Chamberlain versus Harvey, which was a 1696 case, 
uh, Chief Justice Holt um, of England found that there could not be an action for Trover. Now, Trover was an action at law to recover the value of property taken from its owner. Now, Holt said that there could be no action for Trover in relation to black slaves because common law did not recognize black people as having a different status to others. However, the plurality of English laws which separated between the, the prerogative laws and, and common law allowed England to balance the right to property in slaves with the rights of the enslaved when they reach uh, England. So while Indians' air may have been too pure for enslavement, it was never clarified how that same air allowed the beneficiaries of slavery to thrive. So the point that I'm, I'm making towards uh, concluding this, this presentation is to say that while we portray the wrongfulness of chattel slavery as already evident in the past, even if imperial laws asserted otherwise, I urge international lawyers to find a common temporal disposition that can link the past to the present. And, and here, what we must remember to do is to explicate the ambiguities of what lawfulness itself means alongside explicating the certainties of what we know injustice means. Now, whether such an inherently unjust and exploitative practice can satisfy international law's requirements of lawfulness must be discerned on its own merits, as the Dr. Ebie uh, uh, mentioned, without a formalistic assertion of the legality of the trade. Uh, because any assertion of the legality of the trade can only give credence to European imperialistic practices uh, that European customary law allowed. So I want to end with some strong words from Franz Fanon, who said that reparations must be considered the final stage of a dual consciousness, the consciousness of the colonized that it is their due and the consciousness of the capitalist powers that effectively they must pay up. Thank you. Thank you very much. I like that uh, uh, quote from Fanon. Um, I think we have to uh, spend a lot of time you know, putting our heads around that. Uh, at this conference and what that, uh, what kind of duty that puts among, on us as current day, um, you know, international lawyers, um, and how we use our talents and our education, uh, to help create the circumstances under which, uh, reparations and the demand for reparations uh, become real and realized. Thank you. We'll come back to you with some questions later, but I want to uh, go to Michelle Epperly. She uh, holds a doctorate in international law from uh, Sabon uh, School of Law and is currently at the Max Planck uh, Institute in Luxembourg for uh, procedural uh, law. Um, and he is going to pick it up in terms of our historical uh, uh, review here at uh, 1815 uh, and uh, look at the period 
uh, going through 1888. Michelle? Yes, uh, thank you very much, Professor McDougall. Um, a great many thanks to the organizers and especially to, to Judge Robinson for inviting me to this great symposium, uh, uh, which I al already found very, very stimulating. Um, I uh, am going to talk about the period between 1815, uh, which uh, saw the, the, the Vienna Declaration by which Western powers, the main Western powers, recognized that uh, they had to abolish uh, the African uh, slave trade, uh, and 1888, which saw the abolition of, of slavery in, uh, in Brazil and therefore ended, formally at least, uh, the practice of uh, transatlantic chattel slavery. Um, now, um, why this period? Um, you know, uh, this my my account. I will actually take the uh, pre pre present the account of the perpetrators because since we all ag we agree mostly that um, as as Nora Whitman already said, Mamadou Poverty Manon, that that transatlantic chattel slavery was likely never legal in the first place under universal international law. Then examining uh, post-1815 international law doesn't really add anything to that question. However, uh, the only interesting thing in that period is the fact that Western states changed their discourse and got tied up in all kinds of entanglements and contradictions. So. From a, so I will therefore adopt a Eurocentric perspective, but also in order to show the contradictions of Western states during that time. Um, and, and I'm going to uh, adopt a positivist approach. Um, so from a met methodological point of view, I'm going to, to adopt a positivist uh, approach and provide a West, an account of what Western powers thought was the international legal status of transatlantic sla chattel slavery during that time. And on the other hand, I would show the reasons behind the state practice and highlight its insufficiencies and also possibly some of its unexpected legal consequences. I will do so by first examining the object and purpose of the 1815 Vienna Declaration, second, uh, identifying the practices outlawed by treaties resulting from that declaration, and third, analyzing the impact of this practice on the legal status of chattel slavery in the Americas according to Western powers. In classical Western accounts, the declaration of the powers on the abolition of the slave trade signed by eight major Western powers at the Congress of Vienna on the 8th of February 1815 was unquestionably a watershed in international law. Because for several centuries, Western international law had served as a crucial tool in supporting this practice of transatlantic chattel slavery, either by organizing the trade or by enforcing and protecting the rights of, of, um, of slave uh, holders in, in uh, the uh, colonies. Uh, breaking with this centuries-old practice, the Vienna Declaration proclaimed the universal and definitive abolition uh, of the trade in, in Africans as slaves as the common binding goal of all civilized nations. Uh, however, the short-term implications of the 1815 Vienna Declaration were limited. Far from creating an immediate obligation to renounce the slave trade, its signatories had only agreed to engage in negotiations that would fix a date for the general abolition of that trade. Moreover, and even more crucially, the abolition of slavery itself was neither mentioned nor envisaged by the signatories of that declaration. What the Vienna Declaration did was artificially splitting up one global phenomenon. I mean, uh, Mamadou Ebier already mentioned this splitting up 
Um, and uh, and uh, splitting it up into two distinct phenomena, namely the slave trade, i.e. enslavement, the chattelization, and deportation of Africans as slaves. And secondly, the colonial slavery itself, i.e. the status and treatment of previously enslaved and deported Africans or their descendants as slaves. The rationale behind this distinction was both practical and legal. From a practical perspective, British abolitionists simply thought it was easier to first go after the slave trade and then go maybe go after, maybe go after slavery. And from a legal perspective as well, in that time, um, the Europeans thought that the slave trade was deemed an easier target than the institution of slavery because it was clearly international, because you had to move people from one country overseas to another, to colonies overseas. So you had to use the liberty of the sea. And, um, uh, and also it, it was very much in line with the idea of civilization because what somebody like Wilberforce said is we're going after uh, the slave trade because it's, uh, it, uh, it prevents Africa from civilizing because it causes all these wars between African kings and we don't want this and we don't also, we don't want to Africa to be depopulated and this was even mentioned in the Vienna Declaration because it said that uh, the slave trade was uh, desolating Africa. I also uh, désolé in French and also depopulating it, uh, uh, answering it of its population and therefore preventing it from civilizing, from joining the great movement of progress initiated by the West according to their views. The, the Vienna Declaration quickly materialized in dozens of treaties targeting various practices related to the slave trade and um, and uh, nevertheless, um, the, 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 uh, the, so these, uh, these, these treaties, uh, they, um, they had further reaching consequences than what initially contemplated. So, uh, for instance, they were very soon applied beyond the Atlantic world. As soon as 1816, uh, Western powers uh, intervened in, uh, in the Maghreb states in Northern Africa to uh, uh, have them uh, stop the enslavement of Europeans. And they said that they further, uh, that they henceforth considered that the enslavement actually of people was, was illegal. So this meant that actually chattelization had become illegal uh, as such. Um, and the prohibition uh, of, of the slave trade had also direct consequences on, on the, uh, on the um, on uh, the, the provision of enslavement had direct consequences on the, the definition of the slave trade itself. So it quickly became clear that uh, chattelization was not limited to formal changes in the legal status of an individual, but could result from the treatment imposed on such an individual. Because in order to identify illegal acts of slave trading, uh, anti-slave treaties and anti-slave trade courts rely not so much on status, but on the, as on the concrete treatment of the Africans found aboard slave ships. Uh, moreover, treaties for the suppression of the slave trade were based on the premise that states had the obligation to guarantee the effective freedom of all liberated slaves. Liberated as part of the repression of the illegal slave trade, of course. Uh, despite an ever-expanding definition of what constituted internationally illegal acts of slave trading for most of the 19th century, however, Western states held the view that they had no right to fight foreign slavery or slavery-related practices that they deemed to be of a purely domestic nature. So this, you can find this in the 1814 Treaty of Ghent, where the US agreed to join Britain's fight against the slave trade, but also where Britain also agreed to 
uh, hand back slaves to the US, at least in, in theory. I mean, they paid reparations, they didn't hand back the slaves. Um, and similarly, even in the, in the uh, 1850s, after many Western countries had already abolished slavery domestically, uh, I mean, in their colonies, several arbitral awards held that fugitive slaves who had not been victims of acts of slave trading that were illegal under international law had to be returned to their foreign owners. Um, and the first international treaty that formally excluded any such restitution of fugitive slaves was only in, uh, concluded in the 1860s. So it was only after several major Western powers had abolished uh, slavery domestically that one witnesses the conclusion of treaties targeting slavery practices without a reference to their international dimension. And this would eventually open up uh, the, the way for treaties that would target slavery domestically, such as in the 1885 uh, final act of the Conference of Berlin, where, the West, where Western powers agreed to end slavery in Africa. Um, um, so, I mean, does this mean, uh, this is going to be my, my last part, this, does it mean that the behavior of slaveholding Western states before the 1880s was legal under international law? I mean, in my view, not, not at all. I mean, first, uh, you, many, I mean, even under their, posit, in, under their international law, under their Western international law, because many Western states waited decades before actually enforcing their legislation and treaties against illegal slave trading. So in that, in that case, they were already acting wrongfully under international law. And um, moreover, uh, the legal situation of many Western states is even more precarious if one takes into account the question of de facto chattelization. So for instance, states hiring Africans and other non-Westerners under dubious conditions before shipping them overseas and having them work under extreme conditions with high mortality rates can be seen as uh, an act of enslavement and chattelization, even though these people were not legally speaking slaves, I mean, under Western uh, formal uh, law. And the same is true for uh, states that subjected freed slaves or even prisoners of war or the inhabitants of conquered territories, in, including colonies in Africa in the late 19th century, to slave-like forced labor. Um, and generally speaking, of course, the situation of Western states is, is, of course, much more contentious if one agrees that the situation before, I mean, that, that the Western transatlantic chattel slavery was never legal in, in the first place. And if one adopts this view, and I'm very much tending into this direction, although I agree with Mama Duhebier that one needs to go deeper into state practice and uh, the practice of local polities to examine this, um, one would then say that actually the European uh, abolition movement of 1815 was not a big uh, watershed, but actually the end of an exception. And I would like to conclude this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm coming back to you with questions uh, as well. But I want to first move to uh, the final speaker in on this panel, uh, Dr. Uh, Patricia Bissou-Seller, um, who is the special advisor for the uh, gender, for gender uh, of the office of uh, the prosecutor of the International uh, Court, Criminal Court. Um, she was uh, legal advisor for gender and senior trial attorney uh, uh, for the Yugoslav Tribunal and uh, the uh, Tribunal on Rwanda. 
Um, she's had quite a uh, storied career, I would say. Um, and she is the recipient of the Prominent Women in International Law Award by the American Society of International Law. Um, she's going to talk about sexualized practices in institutions of the slave trade and slavery. So, Patricia Sellers, take it away. Thank you very much, Gay, and thank you very much to the organizers, to Justice Robinson. This has been a fantastic uh, conference. Right, my gaze is going to be, in this presentation, directed toward practices, in particular sexualized practices, that were integral to the enslavement and the slavery of Africans and their African descendants. A multitude of sexual practices, if not institutions, must be countenanced when contemplating the breaches and when attempting to calculate the immeasurable toll that reparations will address. First, studiously, identifying the actual breach and then accurately uncovering the ensuing harm is the exercise that we must undertake. Even in the modern determination of reparations, these are the steps that are taken for international human rights law and international criminal law. Now, the very erudite and highly competent interveners who preceded me, and I congratulate you in your presentation, have really critically reasoned and presented compelling legal analysis about the breach and actually about the illegality of the practice, even if it's circumscribed or seen to be provincial in its legality, that very European perspective is the opposite of any form of universality. Their presentations underscored that even with the flourishing bilateral accords to halt the transatlantic, a transatlantic slave trade, that there was very little legal responsibility that flowed to the abolition of slavery itself. With the notable heroic exception of Haiti, early decolonization in the Americas officially subsumed enslavement into their new political structures, into their new constitutional government. Slaveocracy is the appropriate appellation for those nations that emerged, such as the United States or Brazil, or the governing apparatuses of the colonies like Cuba or Guadeloupe, who were still tethered to European metropolis. They were slaveocracies. Their reliance on the slave economy and domination over the enslaved preserved, buttressed by a Westphalian notion of sovereignty of states that Michelle has just referred to. And in turn, a Westphalian notion of the sovereignty of states who still maintain colonies. The breaches of the transatlantic slave trade and the ensuing slavery should be further nuanced. Paradoxically, with legal hindsight provided by the 1926 Slavery Convention and the 1956 Supplemental Convention to Slavery, yes, I am now using the perpetrator's definition of their own criminal conduct, but please note in the positivist view, it's the criminal conduct that they've decided to stop when they were no longer interested in enslaving Africans and prior to colonizing Africans, they set forth beautiful conventions that outlawed slavery and the slave trade. 
Chattel slavery is rooted in the de jure exercise of ownership that was sanctioned under municipal law and under municipal law of the emerging nations in the Americas. As verified by the territory work of the 1926 Slavery Convention, the ownership of chattel slavery was comprehensive. It extended over each minuscule aspect of the enslaved's lives, including their physical, sexual integrity, and their psychological sexual autonomy. I'll return to this insight momentarily. It's this legal hindsight of the 1926 Slavery Convention and the 1956 Supplemental Slavery Convention, moreover, that defined and outlawed the other breach, the slave trade. Today, this somewhat elusive crime bears closer examination. Have you noticed that there is not a provision for the slave trade in any of the current international courts or tribunals. It is as if it has disappeared, poof, we no longer need it. We are now, and I say these words not lightly, reduced to thinking of the slave trade in its modern form of trafficking, as if we are whitewashing black slave trading with treaties that really arise from the white slave trade and that dealt with commercial prostitution of children and women. Well, what is slave trading when it did apply to the Africans? Slave trading prohibited the reduction of the unenslaved into the status of being enslaved. It also prohibited the transfer, transport, or any form of transmission or conveyance of enslaved people to other situations of slavery. So accordingly, the breach of the slave trade encompassed by the transatlantic middle passage, as well as, and here I underscore, by the internal sale or transfer of enslaved persons further into slavery in the Americas or the Caribbean. It is this internal slave trading that was done in nations such as the United States and Brazil and other slaveocracies. It merits our scrutiny and it must be foregrounded because in terms of reparations, it is not just the transatlantic slave trade that we should turn our gaze to. We should condemn domestic slavery as it was euphemistically called, as well as domestic slave trade. The moral objection of slave trading only applied to the commercial pathways of the high sea. Even today, when we examine the cessation, cessation of transatlantic slave trade, we fail to grasp that you cannot talk about slavery without talking about slave trading, and you cannot talk about slave trading without talking about continued slavery in the Americas and in the Caribbean. Ironically, it's the halting of the transatlantic slave trade, that 1815 declaration that Michelle has just referred to, that actually entrenched the lucrative internal domestic slave trade. While we have imagery of the transatlantic trade with scenarios of abductions, of capture, of kidnap, and then transport on ships and the sale of persons once they arrive in the Americas, yes, this has resonance. There remains a less complete imagined scenario of the fever, the fervency with which the internal slave trade continued and constantly dealt 
with now the homegrown African descendant slaves, maybe not captured from Africa, now having been born of three, four, or five generations of the enslaved. In the United States, the domestic slave trade was anchored in notorious slave markets located in places like New York City, Montgomery, Alabama, Charleston, South Carolina, to go back to South Carolina, or New Orleans. However, the transfer of this human property or chattel was even seen as a very banal transaction in some places. Educational, scientific, and religious institutions engaged in the domestic slave trade. Slave trading was concluded by commercial contracts, redemption for debt, by barter, by exchange, or collateral for defaulted loans. Less recognized was the very common practice of slave trade, of the trade in slaves among family members by inheritance. The internal slave trade also occurred in the form of wedding presents or birthday presents, graduation gifts, or the conveyance of individuals or to organizations by way of donations. We will donate you some blacks or bequest upon death. The internal slave trade was so ubiquitous. We cannot forget it now. Reparations discussions must grapple with the breadth of the external and the internal slave trade. The slave trade is not a secondary, lesser included offense to slavery. As evidence in the 20th century international criminal law and human rights law, slavery and slave trading embody separate and distinct criminal conduct, even though the slave trade and slavery occur sequentially and in tandem to each other, they are distinct. Over the life of an enslaved person, there might have been the initial reduction of being free now to being enslaved and then traded, therefore, into slavery, then maintained in slavery only to be conveyed or traded into another situation of slavery. Possibly, it is only the child who was born into slavery who avoids the first instance of having been free and then reduced to slavery. They, on the other hand, were doomed from the womb. Hence, identification and the studious characterization of the breach of the transatlantic slave trade, the internal slave trade, and slavery are prerequisite steps in order to configure what are reparations. Next, I'll turn to the harms wrought by such breaches that must configure in the calculation that adheres to what would be a just basis for reparations. As Professor Ruth Rubio Martin cautions, Reparations require that we identify the harm and those harmed. Here, my gaze is directed to a germane facet of harms. I reiterate that the terminology I'm using is harmed, and that doesn't mean that we can't place aside that word and possibly hold a later discussion for better terminology. What would better encompass a broader span that shows the damages that were inured? both social, political, cultural, and as well as economic. Inflicted over centuries throughout the lives of the enslaved was the harm to the intrinsic sexual being of the enslaved human being. It was intentional. There was utterly abjured, horrendous acts that were committed, not only during slavery, but yes, by acts of the slave trade. <laughs> was gendered and sexualized and drowned slaves in an omnipresence of sexual abuses. 
During the transatlantic trade, European sailors regularly raped African female captives. Once enslaved in the New World, in the Americas, in the Caribbean, the rapes continued and served many purposes. Male slave owners raped to terrorize, to punish, to just exercise their power of ownership. As historian Peter Colchin recounted, sex between white men and black women was a routine feature of life on many, perhaps on most slaveholdings. As masters, their teenage sons, and on larger holdings, their overseers took advantage of the situation to engage in the kind of casual, emotionless sex on demand that was unavailable from white women. In the United States, the sexual practice of so-called fancy girls existed. These were female slaves of mixed race with European facial features. They were kept in brothels or in individual homes. Certain slave girls were specifically raised or groomed to become fancy girls. Fancy girls were slaves as slaves were traded internally, often bought for high prices at the slave market that catered to wealthy gentlemen. In a closely related slave practice called placage, or placage, which is concubinage, masters kept slave women in sexual relationships, raping them over periods of years. Sally Hemings, the concubine of the US President Thomas Jefferson, is perhaps the most renowned concubine in American slavery history. But both fancy girls and placage, concubinage, signified that who was sexually harmed and how they were sexually harmed was integral to their enslavement. Lesser acknowledged but common sexual slavery practices were committed by upper class white female U.S. slaveholders who bought, who loaned, who exchanged female slaves as wet nurses to breastfeed white infants. Wet nurses created another sector of the internal slave trade that profited from the enslaved woman's commodified breast milk. In Brazil, the practice of wet nursing was called mercenary nursing. It was commonplace. Sexualized and reproductive violence against male slaves was also an essential aspect of slavery and the slave trade. Enslaved males were traded as bucks, while females were traded as breeding winches, specifically. It is not a coveted sexual institution, but it is one that was persistent. The breeding of slaves, that the slaves had to create their own slaves for the wealth of the master. This increased the slave owner's wealth, goods and equity, and the anguish, it increased the anguish of the enslaved. As Professor Barry assessed, forced procreation of slaves became associated with animal husbandry. Thomas Foster documents that both males and female slaves, their owners exacted sexual abuse, such as rape, forced rape of other slaves, castration, genital mutilations, forced separations, and again, the breeding, the constant, the insistent breeding. So enslaved men and boys, enslaved girls and women are who the harm was done to. And the harm I have only briefly mentioned. Therefore, undoubtedly, sexual violence is germane as a component to the reparations that must be addressed. How do we calculate reparations for 400 years of sexual terror, a lifetime of sexual abuse 
per slave, the embodied memory of the sexualized trade and sexualized enslavement of ancestors. The title of my presentation might have led you to assume that I possessed a formula, an algorithm, a suggested tidy sum to redress the sexualized enslavement. I do not. My intent was to ensure that we undertake this difficult, painful task of understanding the depth of our soul wounds. And as Gil Scott Heron pleaded in his blues song, who will pay reparations on my soul? Thank you. Wow, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, just just to ask you, why do you think that there has not been uh, very much discussion of uh, the gender, the sexual dimension of slavery, slave trade, um, as part of the reparations discussion? I think personally, it's a very difficult issue to thoroughly grasp. I think that we're at the place where we can understand and it's often more readily talked about female slaves being raped. Uh, that is a true part. But I think to understand uh, how much sexual terrorization, physical and psychological abuse went on throughout that time period, um, is, you know, to say in a very uh, trite manner, it's, it's more than mind blowing. It's, it's something that your mind would want to reject, reject because it's too difficult to actually sit with and stay with and then calculate with. And I think that's very much the same for those who would have to pay reparations. They do not want to see themselves in the depth of that inhumanity of which they readily participate in the centuries. Oh, thank you. Um... I, I want to turn now to uh, um, the other panelists uh, just to start off the discussion a little bit um, and then open uh, the uh, Q&A uh, for the audience to uh, uh, participate. But um, uh, Barbara, let me ask you that, you know, you, you uh, were uh, discussing reparations, the historical case. Um, and I want to ask you, do you think it's important or relevant uh, to uh, contest the claims uh, that uh, West African kingdoms recognized slavery uh, many years and centuries, many centuries ago? Um, you think that that is uh, an issue that uh, we should actually grapple with in uh, arguing for reparations? Um, and if so, um, how would you contest it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's perhaps one of the most oft-repeated uh, 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 points when, you know, European, former imperial powers claim that Africans and Arabs have long since uh, practiced uh, slavery in their territories. Now, why uh, I don't disagree that enslavement did happen, you know, especially in the case of you know just war, prisoners of war, uh, enslaving prisoners of war was uh, a common a common practice. However, this this whole uh, 
process of you know quote unquote congealing money in their in their bodies uh, of the enslaved and, and that's what chattelization stood for and and that was an entirely different practice which granted um you know owners absolute dominion over the bodies uh, uh, of the enslaved and you know whom they were compensated against after slavery was was prohibited and there are no real examples of um similar kind of uh, you know kind of uh, perhaps the ownership or absolute ownership of, of of people in in west african practices so i suppose there are different types of slavery that were that were involved and 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 that's what makes chattelization perhaps uh, much more much more brutal because the legal implication of chattelization was not restricted to the meaning of dehumanization because later on in fact in uh, after 1807 when um, slave trade was was abolished there were a lot of measures that were in place to humanize uh, slavery because slavery was still very much uh, uh, you know in practice and slave trade was abolished in the british empire uh, but these accounts of humanization did not absolve the profitability that chattelization continued to provide so i think that when we think of when we think of chattelization it has an important dimension legally speaking which was largely constructed by europeans and especially people like john locke uh, who was you know who was very much involved uh, in uh, in his own colonial uh, enterprises had had a big role in in creating these legal uh, uh, kind of normative categories uh, to understand how slavery Uh, is pursued. So I think a lot of the defenses that are used by European uh, imper- former imperial nations is, uh, is is largely problematic and perhaps more to deflect uh, the blame than anything else. All right, all right, all right. And so, Michelle, uh, let me follow up with this uh, uh, question to you. Um, because you said that 19th century anti-slave uh, trade treaty um as as well as the court um often uh relied on you know arguments about the treatment of the slave as opposed to the legal status per se um to identify uh internationally wrongful acts of slave trading uh can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe provide some uh examples um yes of course i mean the um in, in usually uh what uh you know it's slave traders knew very well that the slave the slave trade had become illegal and they tried to uh, to shirk these these obligations and to make their tr- slave trade legal so for instance what some slave traders did was to uh issue c- certificates of manumission to africans having them sign fake contracts and embarking them on, on ships uh, uh, bound for the West Indies, for instance. And uh, in that case, uh, you know, uh, it, I mean, that, that would have been, it would have been too easy to, um, to um, you know, to, to, to get away uh, with that. And so the, the courts that were, uh, I mean, the, the tre- in the treaties already, for instance, if a ship had a certain equipment, um you could uh, convict it as a slave ship uh, even if there were no slaves on board because before that what some slave traders also did was when they saw a british patrol boat or french patrol boat they would throw overboard they would throw the whole sla- the, 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 the 
their human cargo overboard uh, because uh, that was easier for them. And it also shows the total dehumanization of, 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 of the victims of the slave trade. So uh, what, uh, what this treatise did was if, if shackles were found on etc., then the ships could be condemned as, as, a, as a slave trader. And also if uh, Africans that were found on board had, uh, were clad like slaves, so with very little clothes or uh, got very, very bad food or were shackled or were ill-treated, they could not, for instance, pass as sailors, you know. Uh, or as uh, servants or free laborers, you know, mm -hmm. and and this was even used afterwards. For instance, France, uh, even in the 1850s, when it had abolished slavery, was still continuing uh, and shipping off uh, uh, East Africans, uh, mostly to uh, La Réunion and uh, to uh, so in the Indian Ocean. And, and uh, they were also doing this in, in the West, but mostly with Indian workers to Martinique and other places. And um, now, uh, often these Africans uh, would also have been put on board these ships without, you know, their, their consent was not really clear, you know, or they, were not re they didn't really know on what, yeah, where they were going or what they were going to do on to how, for how long it was going to be and that they might die soon, etc. And so, uh, actually, uh, this uh, an incident uh, in Mozambique actually almost started a war between Portugal and France because Portugal actually interned the ship and condemned it as a slave trader. And uh, then the ship was towed to Lisbon and uh, the French um, threatened bombardment of Lisbon. Then the Portuguese released the ship, but then afterwards the French abolished this practice because they realized that it was not... Um, that it was not in line with the anti-slave trade obligations, even though they were an abolitionist country. So it shows you that uh, these, these uh, practices actually went further than just addressing the legal slave trade. I, I have another uh, question for uh, uh, Dr. Sowers. And in the meantime, I want to ask our uh, IT help to... Um, Help me uh, find the questions from uh, the audience. Uh, where do I find them? No questions yet, it said. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't think so. But anyway, uh, in the meantime, I do want to um, uh, ask Dr. Sellers, you know, um, within the um, uh, community of uh, lawyers, international lawyers, what have you, that uh, work on issues of uh, uh, sex and gender persecution, et cetera. There is a, uh, a discussion, a discourse about uh, slavery, uh, you know, uh, sexual slavery uh, during wartime, modern slavery, contemporary forms of slavery, et cetera. So how do you see the similarities or the contrast uh, between what you're talking about, uh, both uh, the uh, treatment and the uh, legal uh, framework? Hmm. Um, and the question of, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, the transatlantic slave trade, child of slavery, et cetera, and this modern discourse. On slavery. Right. I think this modern discourse on slavery 
that in some ways might be looking at um, issues of slavery today, let's say what occurred in wars uh, in Sierra Leone or in Syria of the Azizis. But I think that many international uh, lawyers and international feminist lawyers have a very ahistorical point of view on slavery and in particular the sexualized nature of most enslaved uh, populations from a historical point of view and a contemporary point of view. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, this kind of weeding out sexual slavery to me as a separate provision as opposed to reinserting the sexual abuse under a provision of enslavement uh, has really not been, has, has not been discussed as thoroughly as it should. I think that uh, many feminist lawyers think that sexual slavery is a great victory. Look, we've separated out, now they'll be able to confront it. But when you understand how many forms of sexualized harm can occur in slavery, it's not, uh, I mean, this, this sounds ridiculous to say, but it's not just about the rapes. And so how we've constructed sexual slavery under most of our international uh, statutes is being held out for a sexual act. Well, under the sexualized nature of enslavement, you don't even have to be held out. Young girls who have their menstruation checked by owners and enslavers are not held out for an act, but they're sexually, uh, sexual, their enslavement is sexualized. So I think that um, possibly with the reparations discussion, having a better understanding of historical forms of sexual abuse under enslavement, that we can come and enrich the current discussion. In addition, as I stated before, the current discussion uh, particularly just kind of um, uh, ignores the slave trade. Uh, they'll substitute it under a transnational crime, which is trafficking, but tra trafficking is not an international crime. It's not a youth cohesion crime. And so uh, there is uh, quite a bit of, I would say, ignorance, and I hope it's not willful, because now we do have opportunities to really address it. But I think that we have somewhere um, now aligned trafficking and females and children and are holding on to it for dear, for dear life uh, without looking at any of the other international legal tools that could be available. Um, okay, uh, just uh, here's a question that seems to be a follow-up to that. How should the historical reality of sexual violence against enslaved uh, persons change uh, the uh, discussion around reparations? Uh, does it lend to greater compensation, uh, non-monetary compensation, or some other uh, response uh, may be forced on uh, focused on improving uh, current conditions? Well, I think one of the ways that it could change our discussion reparations is that we're not always talking about labor on plantations, uh, that we're understanding that what was reaped out of enslavement uh, is broader. And maybe as I uh, tried to hint at, we don't have adequate terminology to talk about uh, and I don't want to call it the sexual work of enslavement, but I want to call it sexual harms and damage of enslavement. In terms of uh, pecuniary damages, moral damages, in terms of what we set up um, memorials to, to, in terms of what we would learn in history books, how we can understand uh, what does the human 
being holds, they hold their sexuality. What can be destroyed when one is exercising powers of ownership over the human being is aspects of the sexuality. That could inform our reparations discussion. Um, okay, here's another question from the audience. Uh, Britain during the 19th and 20th centuries characterized itself as anti-slavery at the same time that it expanded its colonial holdings. Um, how did prevailing views uh, of the time reconcile the relationship between colonialism and slavery? Anybody? Yeah, I could answer this question. I mean, in, in my view, the, uh, the key concept in this regard is civilization. The idea, the notion of civilization, um, which can be first taught in international law in the uh, Vienna Declaration of 1815. Now, what did this idea of civilization entail? First, the, uh, it was an idea that the human societies were generally going through uh, several stages of progress. Uh, and, and second, that some societies were further advanced in that progress than others, i.e. The, the West was further advanced, the others were lagging behind. And thirdly, that the civilized societies had the obligation, the moral duty, to civilize the others uh, and could use uh, force to do so. Uh, this meant uh, that um, they could, uh, they would, the British would, and the others, the other Westerners, as they did when they divided, well, they fixed the conditions for dividing up Africa in the 1885 uh, Berlin uh, Final uh, Conference, uh, they would say, well, slavery is actually against civilization because it uh, prevents us from developing capitalism, to make it simple, in Africa. Uh, uh, however, forced labor is necessary because we need to educate the Africans to labor. <laughs> yeah. uh, so otherwise they won't uh, understand capitalism because they, when we want to hire them to work in our mines, uh, to, uh, and to die by the hundreds, they, they don't want to. So we have to force them to, to come and work for us and die by the hundreds and thousands and millions. So um, th the key was civilization. That was, in my view, uh, and uh, it's, it's in, indeed very interesting because the colonization of Africa took place under the guise of anti-slavery. Mm -hmm. And it resulted in forced labor, uh, which resulted in the deaths of millions of Africans. Right. Not that, another reparations issue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Parvati, do you? Yeah. I, just quickly, uh, thanks. I wanted to quickly just add to what uh, Michelle just said. Uh, in fact, um, the 1926 convention, which was largely lobbied, uh, you know, by the anti-slavery society, was also lobbied again by people like Frederick Lugard, who, uh, in fact, managed to ensure that uh, the slavery convention allowed, as Michelle said, allowed forced labor in the case of public work. So there was a, there was a very kind of a, like a neat exception that was added uh, into even, even how forced labor could be, could be used. And, uh, and it was only in territories, any territories that was controlled by the British, uh, where there was some semblance of slavery still continuing. So there was a, there was a way in which they, they absolutely balanced their anti-slavery attitude with pro-slavery. Um, thank you. Okay, here's a question uh, directed uh, to uh, Dr. Zellis. Um, on, this sad, on this very sad and long list 
would you uh, also add forced pregnancy and forcible pregnancy? Um, how, if possible, uh, would we be able to connect sexual crimes during enslavement to modern-day harms still experienced by former colonists? Well, I, I certainly would um, add forced, forced pregnancy and forced pregnancy. As a matter of fact, the terminology that I was using, breeding, uh, means not only um, in, in essence pregnancies, but uh, to emphasize that males did not own their own semen, what it took to breed. Women did not own their own ovaries. Um, that the, the child that came out of the womb immediately was property. And so it's, it's, it's forced pregnancy, it's forced procreation, and it's something much more soul damaging than just those biological acts. And I think that this is, um, understanding this historically allows us to understand much better when we're talking about instances of um, girls who are impregnated by militias and what they go through. We haven't even talked about uh, whether it's forced birth control or sometimes the forced abortion. And to put these under, from my point of view, these de minimis titles of things like forced marriage, or this is just that there is so much more going on. And I go back to, um, you know, the harm, the, the harm to the soul uh, that these types of sexual um, disintegrations of our integrity take. It's pain and suffering. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, a, con a concept that's uh, quite known in uh, at least uh, many uh, legal uh, communities to uh, evaluate um, what is uh, the, you know, uh, magnitude, if mm -hmm. you will, of the um, other reparations needed. Um, I'm wondering, before we close, because we're coming uh, to the end, whether uh, the panelists have questions for each other or comments that they would like to share with each other. I just want to know what are my uh, co-panelists going to publish their works? I'd like to start um, citing to them. <laughs> All right, yeah. you get them to, to make a plug for your publications <laughs> there. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Professor Seller. That means a lot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think that this is, certainly this is uh, the time for your works to be published to enter uh, this really uh, critical discourse that we're having uh, that is uh, crossing uh, national borders and regions uh, of the globe um, and uh, trying to find a, a, a way to pull all of this uh, together uh, in a uh, discourse that uh, can, um, you know, talk about, develop terminology uh, for discussing the harms done uh, by uh, these um, crimes of colonialism um, and 
uh, slavery and the slave trade, uh, and to find a way to, uh, if you will, uh, 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 make an assessment uh, that would be uh, not just a monetization of mm-hmm. these harms, uh, but really a, a, an assessment of the broad scope of uh, the harms that have been done um, and began to uh, find a way uh, to have a discussion uh, that is uh, positive uh, with uh, those states, those entities uh, that uh, did, uh, that are responsible, let's say, for those harms, um, and that to this day uh, benefit from them. Um, and so at that, uh, I would say thank you to uh, these three uh, panelists that have done uh, a very excellent uh, job. Um, and uh, uh, I want to uh, thank the organizers of this uh, symposium for uh, giving us the opportunity uh, to discuss uh, these questions um, and maybe uh, move the debate to um, another uh, level. So um, at this point, um, I uh, get to close this session. Uh, there is a two-minute break uh, that uh, will start now. And at the end of uh, the two-minute break, we will go into a discussion of the global quantification of reparations for transatlantic chattel slavery. Thank you. Thank you to you panelists. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope you've had a nice little break. My name is Dean Adrian K. Wing. I'm Associate Dean of International and Comparative Law Programs at the University of Iowa College of Law. And I have been in that, uh, at that institution for 34 years. It is my pleasure to be involved in this historic conference uh, I attended the, the last session, and it was very, very inspiring. Uh, I'm also uh, very delighted that uh, ASIL has been involved uh, in helping to put together this, this conference. I have been an ASIL member since 1982, and this is beyond our dreams uh, in 1982 that we could have such a wonderful event. I've also just finished a number of years as the co-founder of BASIL, Blacks of ASIL. And of course, I'm very proud of BASIL's role and its new leadership in helping to put together this historic conference. 
I hope everyone has been enjoying themselves. It is my pleasure to uh, introduce our speaker uh, for the last session for today. Uh, of course, uh, you know who that is. Uh, if, if some of you or maybe many of you attended uh, the entire afternoon session, uh, but presuming perhaps some of you did not, uh, I'm going to give a brief introduction before um, turning over to our, our wonderful speaker. So, uh, Sir Hilary Beckles is the eighth Vice Chancellor of the University of West Indies, and he's a leading economic and social historian. Before starting his term as vice chancellor in 2015, he served a number of roles at the university, uh, including professor of economic history, uh, pro-vice chancellor for undergraduate studies, principal of the Cave Hill campus in Barbados, which I have visited. He's had numerous appointments, numerous honors, um, and uh, many of them you heard when he was introduced earlier. Um, he has over 100 essays and books, including Britain's Black Debt, Reparations for Slavery, and Native Genocide in the Caribbean. He holds a bachelor's with honors uh, in economic and social history from the University of Hull and earned his PhD from the same university in 1980. Of course, we all wish we could be together in Jamaica uh, to hear this talk and to commune with each other uh, for this wonderful conference, uh, but uh, we can't. So in the Zoom world, um, we will just have to make do, and I'm sure we're in for a treat uh, as we hear uh, our topic, which will be global quantification of reparations for transatlantic chattel slavery. So I turn it over to our distinguished speaker, the Vice Chancellor, and um, We'll go from there. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair, for the very generous introduction. I much appreciate it. Uh, thank you uh, for so being so kind. Um, the, the concept of quantifying the reparations discourse is indeed complex. Uh, it's complicated. But I will work through the best I can in 20 minutes how to, how to look at this and how scholars have gone about it uh, in, in recent, in recent uh, decades. Well, of course, we all know that um, there are multiple theories of reparatory justice and uh, uh, moving from the, the, the preliminary step of the apology and and uh, and the atonement and, and and the multiple forms that apologies and atonements can actually take through to a more aggressive activist position uh, which re requires uh, quantitative uh, interventions in respect of repairing the harm that that has been uh, has been done and we're entering the realm of of intellectual creativity because to to quantify harm is uh, a challenge for all disciplines including the legal professions and so on but we we are humans living in very complex human creative environments and the application 
of, of intellect to practical solutions to issues that are not simply practical because some of these issues are practical, they're philosophical, they evoke emotion and passion, and yet we're called upon to, to bring uh, a kind of superstructure, not only of a corresponding philosophical nature, moral, ethical, but also to impact the circumstances, the material lives of people who have been victims to these kinds of specific crimes. So the literature is very diverse and, uh, and the politics of reparation, logically therefore building upon those foundations is uh, the politics is inevitably also very discursive. So even the very concept of the debt and the very concept of who are the victims of crimes, uh, crimes in a historical context, uh, these are subject to very interesting conversations. Just this morning, I was, I was watching the CNN report on, on the Tulsa massacre of, of, eight, of 1921, in which people who were alive then were speaking so clearly and perceptively about having to live through that crime and to be a victim of that crime over several generations. Then we asked, we asked a question about the slavery period in the sense that the slavery enterprise was uprooted uh, just over a hundred years ago. And there are many people in the Caribbean and the Americas generally whose parents and grandparents uh, were the victims directly of these crimes and the households in which several generations grew up, those households were characterized by live and direct victims speaking to their children and grandchildren about these crimes and how they were perpetrated, how they were sustained, systematized, and so on. So it is the crimes of slavery are within living memory. And one of the arguments that has been used to seek to discredit the repertory justice conversation is, uh, well, those things happened a very long time ago. Well, they could not have happened a very long time ago if they are within living memory. And uh, we are speaking about crimes that took place two to three generations ago in living memory and where the scars and the pain and the suffering have remained palpable within households, within communities, and within nations. Then you have on the issue of the quantitative side, the issue that says the intellect cannot possibly compute a repertory methodology. I remember sitting in the British House of Parliament in two. Uh, 2007, 8, when Britain was marking the bicentenary of the abolition of its of its slave trade, and I remember one of the arguments that was used in both the lower house, the Commons, and the upper house, the Lords, was that the crime of slavery and all the elements of it, the slave trading and the the plantation slavery, the urban slavery that it was so large 
that the crime was on such a large scale that it would be impossible to construct a, a reasonable, attractive, logical, acceptable methodology that says, let us repair, let us repair, and repair also at the material financial level, that the crime was too large. The human, the human mind could not wrap itself around allocating numbers, allocating quantitative measurements to the enormity of the crime and its consequences. And therefore, since we cannot imagine the quantitative dimensions in reasonable terms, to begin the process of repairing, let us let us move on. But there was also the issue of of who should pay. Now we have heard that is those of us in the reparations movement. We have heard in recent years from commercial cities like the city of London. That there is no need to discuss if reparations should be paid. That the argument has been won, the discourse has been won. Yes, a crime was committed. Yes, there were victims. Yes, there's a legacy. Yes, there is continuing harm. Yes, there's continuing disenfranchisement. Yes, there's continuing impoverishment resulting from structures, ideas, legislation. Yes, all of that can be demonstrated. The only issue is how to pay and who should pay. And since it has taken us a hundred years to reach the moment where governments, especially, and corporations are now overwhelmed by the evidence of the crime and are overwhelmed by their role in criminal enrichment from the apparatus of slavery, the entire financial system, from the fact that the governments were the ones who legislated it, the government provided the judicial process to allow it to thrive, the judicial system created the jurisprudence and also the practical judgments in courts of law to allow this system to go on and on and on. So all the elements of governments, the executive, the judiciary, the legislature, all of them were participants to enable the origins and reproduction of the system. And the corporations and the families and the institutions of civil society, including the church, the universities, all participated in this criminal enrichment because it was all made legal by the governmental structures, judiciary, legislatures. How then do they comment upon how to proceed? The city of London took a decision a decade ago, a decade ago to look at the numbers. The Central Bank of England was involved. All the commercial banks on the high streets of London today, Barclays Bank, Royal Bank of Scotland, National Westminster Bank, the Midland Bank, all of these financial institutions, Lloyds of London, that are here today on the high streets, that occupy the money markets in the city of London, for example, 
either their or their ancestral banks, their, their, and their earlier formations were part of this journey. And the balance sheet, the balance sheet of government, the balance sheet of institutions, and of property families reflects this investment and its legacy and the enrichment. Over the last three months or so, there has been a tremendous amount of conversation about a gentleman in England, Richard Drax. Richard Drax who is a member of the British Parliament and is arguably the richest man, the richest politician in the House of Commons. But when his father died a few years ago and passed on the wealth to him, a critical part of that was a sugar plantation in Barbados. A plantation that was built by his ancestors in the 1640s. A sugar plantation with over 300 enslaved Africans was built by his ancestors in the 1640s. And on that plantation was built the first mansion, the first plantation mansion or what they call it, the Great House, was built in the 1650s. It is the oldest plantation mansion in the hemisphere. And all of this he has now inherited because his ancestors who were the architects of chattel slavery, the ones who went to the House of Parliament to legislate that African peoples for property. And the architects of the notion that African peoples are not used. His ancestors framed this, built the plantation, built the grand house, and all of that world passed through generation to generation to him today. And his response to all of that, well, I have inherited all of this wealth, but it has nothing to do with me. I committed no crimes. I'm a multi-multi-millionaire, but I committed no crimes. I've just inherited all of these plantations and slavery houses and so on. Nothing to do with me. Why should I pay reparations? It has nothing to do with me. I wasn't there when the crimes were committed. Yes, I have benefited from all the wealth because I own it. But he distanced himself from the conversation. All of this is very important. Because when the city of London did their calculations, they used an interesting methodology. And the methodology was, if we imagine the enslaved worker as a wage worker, and we had to pay back pay, that was the calculation. How do we play reparatory justice as a back pay to the descendants of the enslaved? But in the first instance, we needed a methodology. And the methodology used by the city of London was to pay the enslaved worker the same wage that you would have paid a worker in Britain 
at the corresponding moment. So who was the lowest paid worker in the British economy in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries? An agricultural field worker. So okay, pay the enslaved worker the minimum wage that you would have paid a worker in Britain in the corresponding historical period. They did the calculation, and as I said, the figure came into trillions of pounds. But the trillions of pounds was larger than the gross national expenditure of Britain. The purpose of that calculation was not to bankrupt the British government, but to let the British people know the enormity of the wealth they had extracted criminally from these people. And if you enslave six million people for over 200 years, and you extract from them 18 hours of work on average per day, every day, and with the enslaved worker expected to live no more than 10 years on average upon enslavement. That's the, the enslaved Africans who were purchased as adults were not expected to live more than 10 years on the estates and plantations, given the, the brutal nature of the work regime. And since the economics of the situation and the financial model was built on the theory that it was cheaper to buy new Africans than to sustain the lives of existing people. So the business model, therefore, was predicated on the assumption that we have purchased an enslaved African as property for X amount of dollars. And then we had to give them some food. We had to consider 18, 20 hours work regime. Is it more profitable to work them to death and replace them at the market than to extend their lives into old age. And old age, old age in the plantation complex was 40. If you live into your 40s and 50s on these plantations, then you were classified as old. Most of them were either sick with diseases malnutrition-related diseases, poverty-related diseases, overworked, nutritionally inadequate diets, and a labor regime that was brutal. So when you go through the accounts of the plantations, the slave plantation accounts, you see a large number of people classified as old and infirm. And these were people generally in the 40, 50 age bracket. So you run the market analysis and you say, should we be allowing these people to live? A drain on the plantation resources, or do we work them to death and just replace them with fresh Africans from the market? 
And for 200 years, the dominant financial and business model was to purchase, work to death, and replace. It was only at the end of slavery in the last 30 or so years when the price of slaves began to skyrocket that slave owners began to say, well, maybe it is now, maybe it is now more profitable to reduce the work regime, improve the nutrition, extend the lives of these enslaved people so that we will be less dependent on the auction market. And the model then shifted. The model shifted from buying to breeding. That it would be better now, more economical, more financial, to start breeding locally your level supply so as to free your enterprise from the dependent on the labor market. So we saw a lot of literature, and believe me, we have the literature where slave owners were writing business models, working through the extent to which black lives began to matter at the end of the 18th century, simply because it was now, it was now cheaper to breed a domestic labor supply and to disconnect from the international slave trade market. All of this analysis is there in the contemporary documents. The plant, the slave owners wrote this down so we can study their models that are shifting in order to maximize their profits. So now we have this calculation that says, use the back pay concept to work through what reparations will look like as compensation of payment to the descendants of those who were linked directly to these labor regimes. And when Richard Drax of England, member of parliament, made the statement that it had nothing to do with him, the, the workers who are working today on his sugar plantation are the descendants of the people he had enslaved. And you can measure that through the records, baptism and birth records and all of the other genealogical records. We can show these workers were a part of that labor force that was enslaved. These are the offspring. So when he says it has nothing to do with me, the workers who he is underpaying today, who claim that he is underpaying them. These are, these are the great-great-grandchildren of the people who his ancestors had enslaved. And thus the continuity, the continuity of the slave ecosystem to the present. There is another model in which some traction has taken place. The notion that you add to the calculation not just the enslavement and the extraction of the number of enslaved people, but you take that into the emancipation period to demonstrate that following the enslavement as a legal enterprise, there was another hundred years of extraction based on police and government and state brutality. 
In the U.S., they call that Jim Crow. In the Caribbean, we call it apartheid as we do it in Africa. That following emancipation in the Caribbean was another hundred years of racialized apartheid, where Africans could not own property. The government prevented them from owning property. There was an orchestrated attempt between the judiciary, the legislature, and the market to prevent Africans from acquiring property, the basis of their political franchise. Uh, Africans could not walk into this community. This was a white-only community. Africans were not allowed to live in these places because these are white-only places. And all of that apartheid culture followed emancipation for another century. So you have to calculate the impact of that. And in the context of the U.S., this is how the Tulsa massacre occurred in the aftermath of emancipation, that black people should not be allowed to accumulate wealth, the basis of democracy, of social justice, and therefore, with the support of the government, both the local and federal government, communities supported by the police and the judiciary, orchestrated to enable these massacres to happen. Caribbean history is filled with that. It's not just the burning of churches. It's not just the destruction of the burning of churches. It's any enterprise that offered upliftment were destroyed systematically by the racism that was enforced by the state. And thus my colleague, um, Professor Darity, has emerged with an individualistic approach to this, that every African person who went through the enslavery journey, that their children and their offspring are entitled to monetary compensation for the brutality. And every African-American whose ancestors suffered slavery, Jim Crow, apartheid, should receive that compensation as the only way to pay reparations. It's an individualized approach. But there's also, next to that, another model that says, let not the focus be on the individual. Let the focus be on community development. Our com- communities, black communities, they need churches, they need, they need hospitals, they need universities, they need high schools, uh, they need infrastructures to build community centers, uh, they need facilities for libraries and, and for places of learning and upliftment and enlightenment. Uh, these black communities have been stripped bare of the infrastructures that are a part of the white communities. And therefore, the repartory justice methodology should focus upon community empowerment with institutions and with value systems. Banks, insurance companies ought to be encouraged by legislation to bring appropriate facilities with appropriate products into these communities with a view to intergenerational upliftment. And therefore, the massive investment that the state is required to to pay in reparations should be an investment in community development and the upliftment of large numbers of people as opposed to a smaller community. Now, this is very important. These are just different ways. There's no reason why you cannot have multiple methodologies to determine how justice 
is meted out to those who are the descendants of these crimes and who continue to feel the suffering of these crimes. In the CARICOM argument, we have focused upon the European states as the, as the custodians of this model, the owners of this model, the enforcers of this model. We have called upon them to be at the center of a reparation strategy as well as the institutions and families that they empowered, the banks, the insurance companies, the aristocratic elite families, the Church of England, all of these institutions that drank from the well of slavery, including the universities that receive all of these large endowments and grants from the slave owners, and those institutions that also own enslaved African peoples, that these institutions and the state that empowers them ought to be the target of a reparatory justice model, and the model has to be a development model, a development model for those societies and nations that are struggling to emerge from this legacy that there needs to be the equivalent of what has been called in Western discourse a Marshall Plan. And we know what the Marshall Plan is. After, after the Nazis of Germany has, had bombed the life out of many European countries, the Americans sat down with the Europeans and said, we have to rebuild Europe. And we have to rebuild Europe. We have to rebuild the cities and we have to rebuild the hospitals and we have to rebuild the factories and the infrastructure, the, the tram lines and so on. And the Marshall Plan was this huge public investment to put Europe back on its feet after the devastation of the Nazis. So there in the Caribbean, there is a version of that that has been placed on the table. And the European nations have been asked to come to a summit in order to discuss a Marshall Development Plan for the Caribbean and a quantification of the wealth that has been extracted from the Caribbean, extracted through slavery, slave trading, uh, colonization by the state, the British, the European states, their families, the institutions, a sense of the the enormity of that extraction and the call for a return of a part of that extracted wealth, criminal enrichment, to the place of its extraction to facilitate economic and social development. And thus the governments of the Caribbean have written to the governments of Europe for an international summit to sit down to discuss this process as part of repartory strategy. This is where it has reached. There is no longer a question about if. The question now is about how do we find a consensus on how. Historically, reparatory justice has been a relationship between states, where states enter into negotiation in respect of liability compensation. Of course, there's access to institutions, institutions, tribunals, courts that are willing to look at the evidence and make rulings. So there are these parallel tracks of intergovernment 
negotiation for settlement or the use of the facilities of courts of law to adjudicate and offer remedies. In the Caribbean, the diplomatic option has been put first on the table. Global summit, let's talk about it. But in the background, the options available, there are lawyers who are providing significant legal opinion on how to move such claims into international tribunals and international courts in order to, to, have, to have justice. And this, is, this has been the, the, the context. So we are mindful then of the two tracks on which we are seeking to travel in the journey to justice. 